Are we there? Are we there? Do we need to get there? How about some deep breathing? Let's, let's do some collective deep breathing. Hey, I didn't say start. Here we go, ready? Hold it. Give me one more. Hold it. Hold it. Does it feel good? A little more oxygen for the brain? All right. Let's, uh, let's figure out where, what we're, where we're supposed to be. By the end of the week, that would be today, you will have personally engaged, engaged God's work in you to become more of the leader God has called you to be. Have we done some personal engagement stuff? All right. Is it, are, are we getting there? Are we doing this? All right. Come on. There it is. Week in review. I got some candy. I want to see. I want to see if you were here this week. All right. I'm going to have to ask that you raise your hand, because I can't just have people shouting out answers, because there's candy at stake. All right. Come on. Come on. Mm. What is the one thing all leaders must have? Ian, I saw your hand first. Followers, yes. Twix, my favorite. <laughs> All leaders must have followers. Yeah, you're ready. Here we go. You guys are trying to cheat on me here. Come on. Seriously, work. What is uniquely Christian leadership? It's not a one-word answer. It's, one, it's not a one-word answer. This was when we went through all the different scriptures, day one. Yeah. Yeah, humble servants, one of the things about being uniquely Christian leadership. What else? Yeah. You're always below one leader. Isn't that a great thought? Like, we are not the supreme leader. There is somebody that is always above us. We are always following God. Yeah. Example. Of Christ to other people. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Yeah. Observation and love. Explain that more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Last one. Hmm. You can look at your notes. That's why I took them. That's not cheating. That's called writing down notes so I can look at them later. <laughs> Being above reproach. I like it. All right. Next. Sorry. Moving on. No more candy available. What did Jesus require of his leaders? There were five things. Yes. This is for candy. This isn't like a little crackle bar. This is a candy bar. Oh, I mean, you're speaking out of turn technically here. But I like the initiative. Keep going. <laughs> What do you got? Availability, willingness to submit, 
There it is. That was it. That's fine. That you're available, right? He gets in your boat. You say, that's cool. That you follow directions. He says, let down your nets. Even if you've been fishing all day, you still let them down. That you recognize who he is. A miracle just happened. You're somebody who is holy. I am not holy. Recognize yourself. Fall on the ground and say, get away from me. I'm a sinful man, which is a terrible idea. Say, I'm a sinful man. Stay right here and help me. And then leave it all and follow him. That's good stuff. Thank you, ladies. What is the most important type of leadership? Yeah. Ooh, ooh, that's real close. Yeah. That is a great answer. Self-leadership. Self-leadership, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, and see, it's really hard because I have to use all these different nouns for things. So what is the most important type of leadership I would call the type of leadership is self-leadership. That's an answer to a question that is about to come up. What is the leader's greatest strength? I mean, it's great when someone answers for you when you get your hand up first, right? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. I, I knew you knew it, and you got your hand up first. And then somebody else answered, just which helps reaffirm that you know the right answer. Yeah, our greatest strength is found in our weaknesses, right? When you are weak, then you are strong. What is the most important principle of biblical interpretation? Con text. Wait, you're not, you're not telling me what you're getting. I'm grabbing and throwing. Do I need to take that back? <laughs> What's more important principle of leadership? Yeah. Which of these three different styles is best? Depends on the situation. Yeah. I like it. Okay, so here, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'd like to just go around again, and if you could answer these two questions. What, what from this week, what lesson, what anything um, has stood out to you? What, what, what jumped out? What, what are you still chewing on? I mean, it doesn't need to be the most important thing to you. Maybe it could just be one little thing that's, um, that stood out. But if you could just think through the week, we can review. What stood out? And then maybe it's the same, maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's a different thing. But you know, if we had more time, what would be something that you would want to chew on more um, if we had some more time? Is that a fair question? Everybody following what I'm asking here? We're actually gonna start in the back because that's only fair. All right. We'll just use let's use the other microphone because my cord's shorter. Stand by. Okay. I don't have my notes, so I'm trying to... No, that's fine. Would you like to and you're not going to hurt my feelings if you say oh, nothing no. stood no, out no, no. at all. Oh, so. I know. Okay. <laughs> no. I'll just have a very low opinion. <laughs> um, let me think. What I like the most, well, probably not the most, one of the things I remember, um, is being like 
so like above reproach that it's like if you were to be or like you think I don't know just the whole humility aspect of it just yeah like being at level with like everyone like all of you are like like whatever like your followers or whatever like being on that same level so it's like you're not like putting yourself on a pedestal like just divorcing yourself from all pride stuff like that which is something I've had an issue with so Um, for me, it was sit out. I just liked all the um, all the qualities of a leader that you pointed out. Just how, like, a leader isn't always one po person appointed. That within a group, everybody can be a leader at different times, and, and just all the different qualities you pointed out that a leader has to uh, have. Nice. Um, I like when you said our weaknesses is where we're strong. For God finds our strength. Because that's something I struggle with is our my weaknesses. So yeah, I don't know <coughs> what more I could talk about though. <laughs> um, I like the when you were talking about like availability and like humbleness. Like you have to first be able to serve before you can lead. So. I like about available and <coughs> contacts. Every time that gets you, huh? <coughs> you want to go on this side? Or? That's fine. I like the whole part where you're talking about Christian leadership and how, like, we have to be, like, servants to others and, like, we have to set examples of Christ. And, yeah, just that whole part. Uh, I really enjoyed the time that we were watching the movie and we're, like, kind of analyzing in its situation what was the best thing and bad thing to do. Uh, like, <coughs> like the, uh, uh, oh yeah, the leader should be humble himself, and the self leadership is like most important thing. Yeah. Um, I really liked when you talk about the qualities of a good leader. Just like bringing out the best in people and like submitting and then kind of encouraging followers and stuff. Um, I really liked uh, getting into the word, especially like in First Corinthians and First Samuel, and like really like just like applying that context of looking for you know. And so like if we had like more time, I would have loved to go into more stories like that too. Oh. Um, I like the communication strategy, clarity are all key in a group. So it's just not like the leader doesn't have to be the one that's like talking and just like making all the decisions. It's communication within the teammates. I think learning about um, just situational leadership and um, just the whole understanding that it you know depends on the context as well as when you study the Bible. It's um, depending on the context. That was big for me. So. 
Yeah, and also just learning, just seeing how what God um, views as a leader is was really cool because I always had these other ideas about what a leader should have. So. Yeah, like one revelation God hit me with was like, like he came down as a servant and he leaded, and like, yeah, like he could have came down as some big guy and said like he flew around everywhere and, you know, healed people, but like, he came down as a servant because like. Yeah, like, there's more grace in that. Like, I don't know. But, yeah. And uh, one thing I would like to get in more was the word. Like, I loved how you dissected, like, every, like, detail. That was so cool. And, like, yeah, I like your Bible reading voice. It's very nice. Me too. I've worked on it. <laughs> What's up? Um... Yeah, uh, what I liked was the self-leadership thing. Like, you can't, how can you lead others when you can't lead yourself? That was really good. And uh second one uh, was, uh, like, when a hard time comes, like, when, like, the group is falling or something, like, it's important for the leader to, like, uh, mention about the goal and the vision, like, why we're here. Like, I thought that was good. Yeah. I liked First Samuel 28 through 30, how when we were reading that, and then you not you, but the word, and you, you explained in the word how they were both um, in the same situation, but how the outcomes and how they responded to the situation and, and the fact that the leader that did the best was because his character and his values was rooted in, in the heart of God, essentially. I thought that was really good to highlight. Um, two things that I think we could talk more about, the importance of wholeness as a leader, because it's something I've been dealing with this week, and wholeness in the Lord, and that would be with your, your confidence and your character being rooted in the Lord. And then as well, how to manage your leader, like as a follower, is how to, how to, yeah. how to gear with uh, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to do something about 360 degree leadership. <laughs> let, me, let me interrupt real quick. This is a powerful idea, so let me just lay it out really quick. As an individual, you are constantly leading 360 degrees. So the most important sort of leadership where you should be spending 50% of your time is right in the middle, self-leadership, right? Between you and God, you have the disciplines, you're leading yourself. Then you need to be spending some of your time leading down, those underneath you, some of your time <laughs> leading sideways with your peers, because we still lead our peers every once in a while. Like, you know, we're on a team. Sometimes it's our job to stand up and say, here I go, you know, and, and, and it's our job to lead. And then we still lead those above us. We, we still lead our leaders, and you know, and that's an art, you know, especially when you, um, when you, you know, find bosses, when you go on your trip, when you do all of those things. How do you lead up really well? I was gonna do something on that, and then I, I'm running out of time. So maybe next time, right? Mm, the thing that um, I liked the most was when you said that our greatest strength is actually our weakness. And showed us that in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Yeah, that really spoke to me. The, the thing that stood out to me the most was probably um, dissecting the movies and the situations where the handouts, the papers you gave us with um, making a list and leading in our own group. It was um, like really good practice. And then we talked about it and everything. It was something I really liked. It stood out. Well, actually, 
Like yesterday we got decision makings, like yeah, life word stuff and making priority and and we have such a short time, like fifteen minutes to do that. Actually I really hated it because I usually don't make decisions in that short period of time. And I did more uh time to proceed that information. But yeah, leaders sometimes require to make decisions in that short period of time. So that's the hard part. Um, probably the thing that spoke to me most was the uh, was the fact of making yourself available to God, and to honestly just a whole personal sacrifice aspect, and giving everything you have. And uh, probably the thing I wouldn't mind touching more on is like the uh, specific uh, examples of leadership in the Bible, yeah. especially in Jesus in Christ Himself, His self leadership. Yeah. Um, the thing that probably stood out the most, um, was like Dave was saying that availability and the willingness to obey, but not, but past that, the willingness to obey without the knowledge that there's going to be a reward. Cause I'm very much like a rewards based person. <laughs> so, so it's good, you know, of being like, and I feel like the Lord keeps asking like, okay, like if you didn't have these blessings, would you still? follow me and so it's a hard question to ask I don't think I'll know until I'm in the situation <laughs> um, but think something I'd want more time on is um, continuing to talk about not only how to be a leader but really how to be a good follower because I think a lot of times I focus so much on being a good leader and put stress on myself to be a good leader that I forget who I'm following and like really focusing on that availability factor What stood out most to me was um, the article and how to be like at Christian leadership. But I don't know if people re read the article, but it was so good and so well written. And like I had like a lot of questions after we read the Corinthians. What, what does it mean that your weaknesses is supposed that that's your strength? Like how do you do it practically, even though you understand it? But like when you read the article, it's like yeah, like you just get it. So. And also, I like how you engage us and how you, like, try to make our own minds work when we go through a Bible story. Or Yeah, like, that's a good teacher so we can think ourselves. You don't only just put stuff in us because you like to. And if we had more time, I wish we'd do more exercises, maybe, like, like the teams together, like, learning how to work with others and make decisions and have situations, like, the movie situations, like... Yeah. Myself, um, a lot, pretty much everything I found very valuable. But um, things that stood out to me were, um, as a leader, um, or even not as a leader, you need to constantly be assessing the situation. Things change. Um, it might just be um, a car accident with injuries. Like I'm coming from a the mindset of um, a public servant, but you might just be dealing with a car accident with injuries. The next second, the car might be on fire, and if you're not assessing the situation, everyone's going to die. Right. 
and um, it's in, and to 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 count your assets versus your liabilities, and and then um, and then another thing that really stood out was uh, the whole everybody is an elephant and a rider, and you need to um, not just play to either side, but you need to know um, how to effectively and tactfully uh, play play to both sides um, without offending either one. Um, so that I thought that was really neat, and and um, if we were to learn more stuff, it would probably be on um, more s specifically um, going into that um, on how to how to deal with the elephant and with the um, with the rider. Yeah, you gotta get the book switched by Chip and Dan Heath. Switch like a light switch. It, it'll be on the cover, yellow jacket and with a white light switch on there. Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. Um, yeah, I have a new uh, conception of what a leader is and what it should be. Like, our perception is so polluted and, like, the examples we do have, you know, in politics or whatever, like, you know, never show weaknesses or just, you know, it's you have to be successful and all this, um, all these things. And, yeah, the um, everyone has um, a rational self and an emotional willpower and how to appeal to both of them. Cause so often we find ourselves like in sterile and vain conversations and debates that are just going nowhere because we just are stuck in our own, you know, mindsets. And what you said, like, you have to make a form before you fill it. That is, that was really valuable to me, so. Mm, context, that was good. Um, yeah, different leadership, or leadership requires you to look at the context that you're in. Um, and assessing the situation, that was good, taking a step back. Uh, yeah. Um, I think what stood out for me was uh, the qualities of a true leader. I thought that was really cool. And if we had more time, uh, I don't know what I'd like to talk about if we had more time. I guess more leadership stuff. Uh, this week was okay, I guess. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I really, it was really good to, um, like, if we were leaders, like, we know that no how, no how, matter how high we are, we always have Christ as our leader, so we're never like, we're the final word on it. Like, we always have Christ. So um, that was good, and uh, the whole leading thing, not like taking leading. You're by yourself, way ahead of everyone else. That stood out for me. For, for to me. But, um, more time you'd like to talk about more. Um, just um, that whole switch thing that Lauren was talking about would be good. Um, what stood out to me, or what I thought was really important, um, kind of was that Matthew 23. 1 through 12 thing that, um, because whether we think we're leaders or not, we are examples, and people look at us, and they see us, and we're Christians, and so we represent that, so in our conversations, in what we do, and everything we do, people are seeing that, and so, stop it, so, um, yeah, <laughs> just kind of remembering that, that, like, we have to be above reproach in, in all we do, so just to keep that in mind. I really like the analogy with the Three Amigos movie. <clears throat> um, like when he drew the, the physical line and asked them to cross, <coughs> cross it. Um, 
And then, like, how it's related to, like, as leaders, like, sometimes you have to call on a group to do physical actions to represent their beliefs. Like, you know, getting up or standing, like, when we're worshiping um, to come up or to say a certain prayer. Or, like, <clears throat> and, like, how Jesus called us to do tangible things, like the breaking of the bread and the wine and dunking people in water for baptism. It's just, like, sometimes we really have to, like, um, engage our bodies or our mouths to move our spirits too and like I just really like that connection I think that your super soaker analogy of um, just dying um, like already being <laughs> being a dead woman basically and, and just like living a life for Christ and just living dangerous dangerously because it's not my life like it's it's a life for God um, I yeah it's feel like it's just super kind of generic to hear like die to your own self and live a life for Christ I feel like we hear that a lot but um yeah that just hit me really hard of just like a really real kind of realization of that and then also um just that you never lose authority by giving it away that was super powerful of just like as much as you'd like the more you can delegate things, the better. The more that you can not be the person, you know, center stage with all the lights on you. Like, you're not giving away your power or, like, being less of a leader. Like, you're being more of a leader. And, yeah, that was awesome. And I would love to dig into the word more. I would love to, um, yeah, learn more examples of of leadership from that. Um, yeah, just, yeah, this whole week has been really good. There's so many things that I've learned. Um, one thing that I really liked yesterday when you were talking about the whole Genesis chapter one thing about you have to make the form before you can, like, fill it up with things and stuff and just, yeah, how that relates to just, like, persuading people to make decisions and stuff. Like, yeah, I really like that and just the whole idea of just, like, context and how you have to, like, read every situation thoroughly before making your decision that that really stood out to me and I really liked all the your examples with like movies and stuff like that it was really good so yeah yeah I like the whole week too like um, yeah talking about availability and context and humility and you're not always the number one leader there's always gonna be Christ above you um, yeah you need to be a follower and a leader at the same time there's so much good information so many things I took away from this week and you used so many good examples, and I loved how you played in the scripture. Um, you can use it a lot more, I think. Um, but yeah, having many different examples, like from your life and from um, movies and everything like that. And I'm in the same boat as Dave, that um, I'd love to hear more about like how Christ's leadership played out in the scripture. Um, yeah. Um, I really like the, I think it was the first day when we just went through all the Bible verses about leadership and... Yeah, but also just being able to reconcile that, like, the Bible does call us to do, like, almost exact opposite of what the world tells us. Like, when we lose our lives, we find it in Christ, and we have to show our vulnerabilities and weaknesses as a leader. But then also reconciling that with, like, we live in this world, and we have to, um, like, we have to recognize that, like, appearances do matter sometimes since we are people and relating to people. But then also the same time keeping our eyes on Christ and making sure um, that we're not swept away by the ways of this world. So. Um, what stood out 
just being a self, like, leading my, yeah, being a self-leader, following, just, like, just going after the heart of God. And in doing that, kind of just, you lead by example by doing that because your heart's so after God and others just see that and kind of brings respect. And just being being a servant to others, I think we all can be leaders here by just going after God's heart and being examples to each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just like when you say about the uniquely Christian leadership to be humble, to be follow Jesus, and about, uh, yeah, about the character of God, how they lead. And then I just wonder, the, uh, I just wonder and try to compare about the leader, to be a good leader or to be a, a father. Because I think, uh, oops, what's that? <laughs> Because I think, uh, yeah, it's like very different about to be good leader and to be a, f a father. It's, it's like when you to be a leader of nation or to be father of the nation. Because I think leader have a time, is have a period when you're not being a leader again, you don't have a followers, right? Then you're not a f and you're not leader. But when you to be a father, when you not when when you have a follower and you stop to be a leader, but they still follow you because your father not just only a leader. So I'm just wondering about that because I think there's a lot of good leader in this world about the leadership. There's a lot, but there's a few of father in this world. You can count in these fingers. So I just wonder what's leadership, what the father's things. Um. Scripture, one uh, one Corinthians eleven one really stood out to me. Imitate me, just as I also Im imitate Christ. It's just really hard to follow somebody that's um, where the fruit of the spirit doesn't appear to be evident. So mm -hmm. that's a really good one for me. And self leadership is the most important type of leadership. Um, until I know how to lead myself, I can't lead others. So, yeah, that speaks to me as well. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, so here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend some time this morning working on one aspect of self-leadership and then specifically a skill of self-leadership based on what like 60 or more percent of you said you would want to hear more of. And then um, this, after the break, what I want to do is I want to take a look at the skills that Jesus employed in self-leadership and then do some, some tangible things with that. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to spend some time in the scriptures this morning. And what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to basically in a very short amount of time, I'm going to do something that I call advanced Bible study techniques, all right? And I want to teach you how to read the scriptures differently than you have been taught how to read the scriptures before, because there is no greater strength that a leader has than the ability to hear from God, right? I mean, your greatest strength is found where Christ is made strong in you. Christ is made strong in us often when we we're spending time in prayer, spending time in the scriptures. So if we read the scriptures well and we understand more clearly what's inside of them, the, um, the more we're allowing Christ to speak to us. Yes, everybody following my logic on that one? 
So we're just going to do advanced Bible study techniques. We are not going to go into specifically leadership passages this morning because uh, we've already done those. I want to teach you some different stuff, okay? Um, so what, what, what's the most boring section of the Bible? Chronicles, Numbers, Leviticus. Leviticus. The ge- What'd you say? The genealogies. I totally agree. So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Yes? What do you think it is? There's a little something. Yes? Perfect. Okay. I'm so glad you think that because I do too. Turn to Genesis chapter, I want to say five. I may change my mind when we get there and find out it's not right. All right. I'm going to need the whiteboard. Stand by. Okay, I actually want to do uh, Genesis 4 first. Advanced Bible study technique. When you read through a genealogy, you want to look for what is the same and what is different. What is the same and what is different? I'm going to start reading in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Cain lay with his wife, and I very much doubt they just laid there, because she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irid, and Irid was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam lay with his wife again, probably not just lying there, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enish. At that time, men and women began to call on the name of the Lord. Confusing? Yes. Why is it in here? I would like to know what you found that is similar. What, what happens sort of again and again throughout this passage? Yeah, there are, uh, there are children being born, yes? 
due to extracurricular activities. What else? What else is happening? Anything else happening regularly? People are making stuff. They make three different things. What do they make? Instruments, I just heard. Livestock. There's something else with livestock. Yeah, he lives in tents. That's great. What, what else? What else stood out in this passage? Yeah. One thing I noticed about those three things is that these are the sons. These are descendants of Cain. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're in brainstorm mode. We're in brainstorm mode. You can't draw conclusions. You're drawing conclusions. Hold on. Hold. Hold the thought. Hold the thought. I already know. You got to hold the thought. We're in brainstorm mode. You're already. You're already farther. There's vengeance and murder, yes? What else do you see? Two wives. Two wives. Thank you for catching that. What else happens? Yeah, there's, there's lots of kids. Seth has a son, too. Yeah, Seth calls on the Lord. What else? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's not just boys. Yes. What does um, what does Cain do at the beginning of the passage? Yeah, there's this city. Okay, what is the most important principle of biblical interpretation? Context. Tell me about the different contexts that are involved here. Yes. So Cain, I mean, the context is what came just before this, is that Cain killed his brother Abel. All right. What other contexts are there? There's not very many people on the earth. Why? Is brand new. Very interesting. How do we know that's the case? Because we were reading in Genesis. Yes? In the Old Testament. These are contexts. We are in chapter four. We are only four chapters into this book. It's very early. Okay. I want to figure out what the reason is that this genealogy is being recorded. I want to know why somebody wasted ink and paper to write this down. Because there had to have been a reason because... Ink and paper was pretty expensive back in the day. All right? Why did they choose to write this down? So we're going with similarities. We're going with differences. We're going with things that stick out. What I heard you guys tell me 
is that people are having children. Yes? And those children are doing what? What, is, what does all of this represent? C- civilizations being developed. Technologies, yes? Civilization is advancing. We're just going to pretend my spelling is always right. Um, However, at the same time that civilization is advancing, sin is advancing. Yeah. Ada and Zilla hear my voice. Wives of Lamech listen to me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech is avenged 77 times. What's the implication there? If Cain killed one guy... If Cain killed one guy, Lamech killed yeah, many guys, right? If Cain's avenged seven times, I need to be avenged 77 times. Sin is increasing. However, what do we find out from Seth's line? Yeah, but there's some people who are calling on the name of the Lord, right? So if I heard you correctly, what you're saying is that at the beginning of time, civilization was advancing, but sin was increasing. However, the people of God called on the name of the Lord. Yes? Is that why this passage is recorded? So that we know that civilization is advancing, but sin is increasing at the same time, but the people of God will call on the name of the Lord. Yeah? Does this sound familiar to anybody else where civilization and technology is advancing in a time period and it seems like sin is advancing in that same time period and yet the people of God are still supposed to call on the name of the Lord? Does that sound vaguely familiar to anybody living in the 21st century? Right? This is good stuff, yes? Okay. Let's do the next one. Remember, you were looking for similarities. You were looking for differences. This one is going to stick out like sore thumbs, which I have been told stick out. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Similarities and differences. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man or human. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. 
When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right. Stand by. I need an eraser. It's still moist, like a moist doily. All right. Okay. What was the same in this passage? Yeah. They all had a son at some point, and then it says other children. Son and sons and daughters. They lived a long time. What else? Yeah. Yeah, I don't even want to think about that. I really don't want to think about that at all whatsoever. Let's move on. Yeah. Oh, great. Let's talk about that. That'd be great. I want to talk about 500-person-year-old sex. Yeah. Fascinating. What if before the flood, there was a layer of water over the top because there wasn't precipitation? And so they didn't understand years the way that we understand years. So the way that they recorded their age was different than the way that we record our age. Because they weren't able to see that the earth was circling the sun for 365 days per year. So they recorded their days differently than we record our days. So, I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out. Yeah. Right. Sure.
I, I, yeah, I, we're done talking about it entirely. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to have a conversation about 500-year-old sex. That's just not going to happen. Done. We're moving on. Similarities. They had a son, and then they had sons and daughters. They lived a long time. No, because Methuselah was close to the end, and he's the oldest. There was a variation. I'm not sure there's a pattern there. I've looked at that one. What, but you said something. They died. Did anybody else hear something about them dying in there? There was that refrain again and again and again. And then they died. And then they died. And then they died. Whoa, whoa. We're on similarities, not differences. Any other similarities between them all? Yep. Okay. Differences. Yeah, Enoch. Taken away. But there was, there was something else we learned about him that he did. Yeah, he walked with God. Oh, that's a theta, which is the first Greek letter for God. And saved me time in seminary, and I can't figure out how to write G-O-D anymore. Okay. Um, give me other differences, things that stood out that were different. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's comfort. Yeah, comfort in what? What is, what's the? Labor and toil. Why? Ah, because the ground is cursed. Anything else that stood out that was different? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he sort of lives to a complete number of years, right? 777, which is sort of code. Yeah, for completion. Yeah. Yeah, so he fathers three, which it, they're tipping us off for the next passage. So, yeah, he, they, they list the three there. What else stood out? Look early. Yeah. Different, different guys, yeah. What's that? Yeah, what, what is it? Yeah, isn't that interesting that it says, you know, the account of Adam's line? The, um... The trick is there, if you look at Genesis 1 to 11, which, as was pointed out yesterday when we were learning about Titanic, is different than uh, Genesis 12 to 50, there are five of those accounts, if you look at them. So it'll say, this is the account of, um, hold on, give me just a second. This is the account of Adam's line, this is the account of something else, this is the account of something else, and then I think it ends, the last one is, this is the account of Abraham. So there's five um, they're called Toledotes. Yeah, so that's just a, it's, a t it's sort of like a subheading. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's only talking about Seth because just so you guys know, these genealogies, they're a lot like Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore does not list every single president that the United States has had, yes? It just gives you the highlight reel. Okay. They didn't carve every guy on, on the Black, Mountain, Black Hills, yes? It does list them all, I'm sure. I've, I've been there as well. It's a very interesting study. Okay. Let me rephrase. We only have four presidents carved into Mount Rushmore, correct? Is that right? You worked there. I just want, there were four. I believe they were Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. Teddy, TR, as some people call him. Now, is that all the presidents that the United States have had? No. Would it be possible for somebody to say metaphorically that Washington was the father of Jefferson, Jefferson was the father of Lincoln, and Lincoln was the father of Roosevelt. If you were just speaking metaphorically as far as certain traditions and things that were handed down from generation to generation, that would be true, yes? It's possible that's what's going on here. I don't want to argue it one way or the other. It's possible that's the way that we're looking at this passage, okay? However, I still need something else that is different, and it is from the beginning of the passage, it is different it sticks out in like one or in verse one or two, yeah. Yes, yes. In his likeness and image. But what does it say about Adam? Okay, so Seth and Adam are, um, so Adam is made in the likeness of God, yes. And then Seth, his son, is in his image and likeness, which is tipping us off. It's not going to say that every single time, but it's tipping us off that kids are in the same image and likeness of parents. Yes? We, we know that they're just not going to repeat that every single time because they're trying to save ink. All right. Let's put this together. I want to talk about the most important principle of biblical interpretation, which is context. We are in Genesis chapter what happened in Genesis chapter 1? God, God creates the heavens and the earth. Yes? What happens in Genesis 2? No. God creates human beings. How does God create human beings? In his image and likeness. Right? Context, image, and likeness. We just talked about that in Genesis 2. We're still thinking about it when we're reading Genesis 5. What happens in Genesis 3? People fall. What happens because of the fall? There's a curse. There is death. Do we see something about death in this passage? Do we see something about a curse in this passage? Do we see something about likeness and image in this passage? All of this is very fresh in our minds. And so as we're reading through this passage, we're realizing, oh, bummer, exactly what God said was going to happen in Genesis 3 is happening precisely that way. So what I heard you guys telling me through this whole deal is that people were, in fact, having children, and they were living a long time, but they were living underneath the curse, and so they died. Yet, in the midst of that, people of God were walking with him 
people of God were being comforted in their labor and toil. And there was some relief from the curse because of that. I think that's what the passage is saying. I think that's what I heard you tell me. That people are made in the likeness of God and that's being passed down, but so is this curse as well. And yet when people are walking with God, people are walking with God. They're finding comfort from their labor and toil. They're finding comfort from this curse. I mean, the message that I think you're supposed to get when you read through this, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, is like, that's depressing, but there's these things that stick out that make you think, you know what, I can walk with God. There's still, there's still comfort in the midst of all of this as well. You get it? Get genealogies here? There's lots more fun stuff out there, but I want to do, I want to do one more type of literature, and that's par- parables, okay? Jesus uh, taught in parables all the time. Can somebody... Somebody just give me a, a, a definition of what a parable is. A story, good part. A story with what? A moral. It's more than just a story with a moral behind it. Definitely simple, definitely something everyone can understand. Yeah, I mean, the, the moral thing was close, but let me, let me expand on it and make it a little bit more specific. It's a story with two meanings, right? I mean, the story is the story. There, I mean, it's usually about a farmer or a dad or, you know, whatever. There's a story, and it has one meaning. But then to, to expand on the idea of moral, it has a whole other meaning. You see... Everything in the story sort of carries with it another meaning. And so here's the, here's the principle of interpretation that I wanted to teach you because the parables are so good. Every character or grouping of characters carries with it a principle in a parable, okay? Every character, character, wow, I'm not spelling well today. <laughs> Character or grouping of characters carries a main point. Let me demonstrate this. Pick a parable, any parable. What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. When you pick it, you need to find it and tell us where it is. I'd be looking in the middle of Luke right now. Matthew 13, verse 31. The parable of mustard seed. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds in the air come and perch in its branches. How many major characters are in this parable? One. What is that character? No, it is not the man. It is the mustard seed. Yes? What is the plain meaning of the text? What is the story about? 
No, 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 just what's the story? Don't talk to me about heaven. Seeds are big or small? Small, but grow into something big. Yes? Is that what the story is about? Did everybody else read that? What is the spiritual story that is being told? The kingdom of heaven, thank you, that is the beginning of the sentence, is small or big, small, but will grow into Yes? It's just that. That's all it's saying. It's saying it very simply, saying it, I think, pretty clearly. Yeah? Let's do another one. Give me another parable. Yeah. Matthew 20. Ah, yes. Matthew 20. At least you didn't give me the parable of the virgins. I always. Okay. Parable of the workers in the vineyard. <clears throat> For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About, a th about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again and in the sixth hour and in the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered to them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Did you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Do I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Three main characters in this story. I'm going to tip you off. There's three. Who are the three main characters? The landowner. Early workers and late workers, yes? What is the main idea that is being communicated behind the landowner. Okay, that's God. And the principle behind what Jesus is saying about God when it comes to the distribution of something is what? He has say. What else? He's generous. What else? Okay, let me back up. I, I'm going too fast on this one. Let's just talk simply about both types of stories, okay? Story one is a bunch of people are hired. All of them are paid the same amount regardless of how long they worked, yes? What is the spiritual story underneath that? God and humans. 
we all receive the same reward of? Yeah, eternal life, salvation. Absolutely. Regardless of what? Regardless of when we became a Christian? Absolutely. How much we work for the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely. That's true. Yes. Everyone gets eternal life regardless of whether they make a decision to follow Christ on their deathbed or whether they do it as a child and follow faithfully all of their years. That's the story that's being told there. Okay? Let's find principles in each of these different characters. Okay? What does this story then tell us about God? That he does what? That he gives generously? Say that again. He finds us standing there. What does it say about how God distributes eternal life? He does it freely and equally. Yes? That is the principle. God distributes eternal life freely and equally. All right? What do we learn about late workers in this passage? They get the same, but what was the first interaction that he had with them? Why are you standing here? I think, I think what the passage is saying about the late workers is it's never too late. It doesn't matter how long you've been standing there. The landowner is still interested in giving you a job, Right? Is that what's being said about late workers in this passage? What's being said about early workers in this passage? What's that? Don't compare. Right. Absolutely. We should simply be grateful for the salvation we've received and not look down our nose at those who have lived a different sort of life. Yeah? Three main characters, three different stories, or three different ideas, three different principles inside of this. Yes? Useful? Are you guys getting it? Let's do another one. What do you got? Luke 15, 8. Sounds a lot like the lost something. Coin. Luke 15, 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Again, Luke Speaking about a woman, he loves using females. He loves using poor people. He loves using Gentiles. It's what he loves doing. She, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. How many... Um, well, the problem is this... You can't really read this um, this story without reading the ones around it because they're all parallels and similar similar ones, aren't they? So we need to read sheep first. Let's read that. Verse 1. Now tax collectors and, quote, sinners were ga all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go out after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. 
I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, those stories kind of go together. The, the, the son is, is, has some slightly different nuances to its story, but they're all three parallel to each other. Three main characters in both stories, okay? Main character in the lost coin woman, and then the parallel, of course, is the shepherd, all right? Main character number two? Right. Be more specific. Lost coin, lost sheep. Found coins, found sheep. Yes, those are our three main characters. Everybody clear on that? What is the spiritual lesson that's being taught in this parable? You got to say it louder. There's believers and non-believers? You think it's about believers and non-believers? Okay. Certainly that people are lost when they're found, the kingdom of heaven rejoices. What else? The importance of the lost. Absolutely. What's the parallel story that's going on here? The parallel story is that there are people who are found who are inside of a relationship with God, inside the kingdom of God. And there are people who are outside of that. Those people deserve to be looked for. And when they are brought in, rejoicing should take place. That's what Jesus is going after in this, right? Let's just figure out what he's trying to say through the different characters. Shepherd, woman, what's the principle there? Yes, it's God. God cares about lost people. And when they are found, throws a party because he's so excited they're found. What's the principle of the lost? Yes, they deserve an all-out search and rescue. Lost people deserve an all-out search and rescue. What's the, par what's the principle behind the found? That the, the safety and security of those inside the kingdom is sure enough that it's worth spending all your time focusing on those out when it comes to search and rescue. Yes? That the priority of our time and attention should not be towards the found, but the priority of our time and attention should always be towards those who have not yet been found. You guys see those three? In there? Is this working? Are you getting this? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's great. That's candy bar good. <laughs> Give me one more. Make it a good one. What? <laughs> You know what? You know what I want to do. I want to do. Um, I want to do a little later in Matthew. 
Turn to the right. We're going to do the... Um, <clears throat> Stand by. 25, Matthew 25. We're going to do the virgins. We already crossed that bridge this morning. We're just going to walk right across it. All right. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Okay. Three groups of characters, or three characters, they are? Bridegroom, wise, and foolish. Yes? What's the, what's the parallel story going on here? What is the principle that Jesus is teaching? Can somebody explain the entire parallel story? I'll start you. Jesus is coming back one day, and some people will be, and some people will be, Yes. Is that is that simple enough? Are we all there? Okay. I like simplicity. Yes. We can argue that point later. All right. Principle behind the the bridegroom. You were stretching. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's, um, it's complicated. Basically, it, the, the same reason that they're, um, they're bridesmaids. It was simply a tradition that the people who you had stand next to you were maidens, not matrons. But we've changed that since then. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. It was a really big deal back in the day how big the wedding celebration was. So you would have the virgins uh, be bridesmaids so that they kind of knew how to work the wedding deal when it was their turn. You had all the people who were married behind the scenes managing things like married people like to. Okay. Uh, the principle behind the bridegroom is, what is the passage saying about the bridegroom? Coming when? We do not know when the bridegroom is coming. Yeah, but he's coming. Principle number two. We already said this. This is really easy. The foolish ones and the wise ones. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the whole parable. That's all it's teaching. We do not know when the bridegroom is coming. Some will be ready. Some will not. I mean, that's exactly all three lessons contained in the stories. What does it mean to have oil for your lamp, according to the passage? What's the, what's the context say? 
but what does it mean to be prepared? Yeah. Right, if they don't have oil, their lamps goes out. But, like, what's the oil? Spirit, relationship with God, heart ready, mind. What does the passage say? What's the context? Let me ask the, a different question. Does the passage tell us what it means to have oil in your lamps? No. Let's keep reading. We need context to know what he means when he's talking about oil in his lamps. Verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusts his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to the other two talents, and another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, yeah. Okay, there were uh, three different characters in this passage. Character one is master. There are also a... Yeah, good servants, they're a grouping, two guys make one group, and there was a wicked and lazy servant, yes? All right, what is the parallel story going on here? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. God's given us some things to do, and we're responsible to do it. And we shouldn't make excuses. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're not supposed to simply let the gifts that we've been given by God sit safely dormant inside of ourselves. We're supposed to multiply it. Yeah, it's a good question. 
Could be. Or it could be that these are just the dormant spiritual gifts that lay inside of everybody, and if they never accept Christ, they never get the Holy Spirit, they never multiply. It could, it could go either way. We don't know for sure whether people are saved or not based on whether he's given them a gift. So let's go, let's go through and just get the three lessons here, one with each main character. The landowner or the master, what is the principle? Yeah, he gives gifts to his servants, yes? And we don't know when he's going to return. Lesson for faithful servants. Build on what God gives you, and then when he returns, you're going to be rewarded. Yeah. Lazy, wicked servant. Lesson is... Don't sit on what God gives you, because when he returns, not good things will happen. Okay. What does it mean, according to this passage to invest, to multiply, to use the talents that you've been given. What does the passage say? No, that's the reward. What? Yeah, but what does it mean to get interest then? What does it say to multiply? What, is it, what does the passage say? Right, but what, what does that mean? How do you do that, according to the passage? Right, but that's the, that's the story one. So story one says, invest, multiply it, make it grow, okay? Story two is the spiritual story. I want to know, what does it mean in the kingdom of God to invest what God gave you according to this passage? Yeah. Is that what it says? Okay. What, but does it say it? What? What did you say? No, it does not say it. It does not tell you what it means to invest the money wisely. Therefore, what is the most important principle of biblical interpretation? Context. We should be assuming that the answer is still coming up, so we're going to need to continue to read. We don't know what it means to have oil in your lamp, and we don't know what it means to invest what we've been given wisely. So we have to keep reading to find out what it actually means. Here we go. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Were thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me and I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
What does it mean according to the context of the passage to have oil in your lamp and to invest the talents, the money that you have been given wisely? What does the context say? Take care of the least of these. See how critical context is? How many times have you been taught the story of the parable of the talents or taught the story of the parable of the virgins and then, you know, the teacher sort of just inserts their, like, here's what this means, right? Which I think is appropriate to do. Teachers do have license to do that. But the context of the passage is that if you want to invest what you have been given by God wisely, you take care of the least of these. And if you do not invest wisely, not good things happen. Did you guys get it? Got the parables thing? Got the genealogies thing? You're better at studying the Bible now than you were when we started. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't think, I don't think, um, I, I think what you'll find when you read the parables is that there's some details inside of it which are necessary for the story, but are superfluous to the point. And so I think that's simply to help the story work, not for us to interpret that, okay, I've got something, but I only have a limited amount of it and I can't give it to other people. I don't think that's the conclusion that we're supposed to draw. I think parables are told much, much more simply in what they're going after. So it's just that simple level. It's not, we're not supposed to pick apart the little details inside of it. And that, and that would be one of the details that I don't think we're supposed to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me point out one other thing really quickly here, because a lot of people miss it. Jesus says, the king will reply, verse 40, chapter 25, verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. There is a regular and consistent theme throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament, that we're supposed to do work for the poor, the needy, etc. But the primary work needs to be for those in need who are already followers of Jesus Christ. He very clearly and particularly says, brothers and sisters of mine. Paul uses the term, especially those who believe, several times in the New Testament in his writings. We do good to all people, especially those who believe. We help everyone who's poor, sick, et cetera, et cetera, especially those who believe. There's that, that parallel, that theme that keeps coming up. So we got to be done because we got to take a break because we're way over time for break. So let's regroup at 11. Awesome. Um, all right, here's what I wanted to do with our remaining time together as my time with you draws 
to a conclusion, sadly. Um, I want to take a look at the type of self-leadership that Jesus practiced. I want to I I understand what, what did Jesus do as a leader in how he led himself, all right? We're going to do that by taking a look at Mark 1. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark 1. I like Mark. Mark's one of my favorites. He's just so action-packed. He gets stuff done. When, um, you know, when, when, when I have people ask me, which I regularly do, you know, like I'm brand new to Christianity and like I want to start reading or I'm not quite a Christian, but I have a Bible and, I'm, and I need to read. Man, for years, people told me like, oh, have people read John. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think John's a good read for someone who's brand new. John is psychedelic. Um, John. John's way too complicated. Mark. Mark gives you a great introduction to Jesus' life. Lickety split. All right. What, what's the inside joke going on back there? All right. I've got nothing against John. I got nothing against John. John's more complicated. It takes a deeper person to understand. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I want to start reading in verse 9 because I don't want to read about John the baptizer. I like to call him John the dipper. Okay. At that time, Jesus came to Nazareth in Galilee, verse 9, and was dipped by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended to him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, with his brother John, in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why have you come to, dest have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus did sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, 
And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Solitary place, another word for that is a lonely place. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you were willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go and show yourselves to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. There is some really excellent self-leadership principles in this passage. So let me just ask, what stood out in the passage to you? What did you observe? Not even on that subject in particularly, but, you know, what, what did you see? What, what did you see in this passage? Yeah, Ian. Yeah, there's only 16 chapters, and like eight of them are getting ready to go and die, and the next eight are like going to die. So Mark's got a lot to do in a little amount of time. Jesus is like all about action in Mark. Yeah. Yeah, he said, don't tell anybody. The scholars call it the messianic secret in Mark that he was trying to keep under wraps who he was. And then the turning point in the book of Mark comes. Remember yesterday morning, the Titanic thing, like the turning point was the iceberg. The turning point in the book of Mark is in Mark chapter 8, I think around verse 48, where, Jesus, where Peter confesses. He says, who do, you, who, do, you know, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and others one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the turning point. That is the iceberg in the book where it's been acknowledged out loud by a human being, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and everything in the book changes after that. The very next thing in the book of Mark says that from that time on, he turned his face towards Jerusalem for he needed to go and die. Something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing there. Okay? So there's this messianic secret that sticks out. What else? Yeah, he had this authority, and he taught with authority, and he commanded demons out with authority, and yet he had compassion on people as well. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, see, did you see the trick to that, though? It says very early in the morning he got up and prayed. But what was happening the previous night? He's healing people. I mean, not only is he healing people like he heals Peter's mother-in-law, but then there's people packing in the door. Everybody in the town is there packing in. I mean, you can just imagine how late he was up, and yet he still woke up the next morning to go to the lonely place to pray. It's a great observation. What else? Yeah. Leper. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. 
Jesus loves going into people's hangout. In fact, that's one of the, it's one of the greatest ministry tools that we can do is, is follow people to where they live their life instead of just hanging out with them in a neutral place. One of the things that I practiced as a, as a pastor for the last decade is um, when I would meet people for lunch and they'd be going back to work, I'd say, hey, can I follow you back to work? And they'd go, what? I'd be like, yeah, I just want to see where you work. I'm like, I'm, I'm fascinated with company. You know, my excuse was, I've never worked in a cubicle. I've never done this. You know, can I just follow you back to work? And they're like, yeah, but people have this enormous pride, right, in where they call home and, and in their job. And so they kind of walk you through and they say, this is this and this is this. Because, they, because especially for pastors, like when they come to me, they come like to where I work, the church, and I'm the expert there, right? And, and I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm saying. But when I go to Quest, which is the phone company, and I visit them in their cubicle, they're the expert and they're on their home turf. It changes the relationship entirely. When you, when you go into the mother-in-law's house, it changes the relationship entirely because it's her house. And remember, she gets up and starts waiting on them right there. She's on her home turf. He healed her on her home turf, but then she got up and did her thing because she was excited to do her thing in her house, and she was excited to celebrate the fact that she no longer had this fever. People love being on their home turf, and if you're courageous enough to minister to them there, they open up in a different way than they do anyplace else. What else? What else stood out in this passage? Yes, I'm sorry. I wasn't looking far enough back. Absolutely. Do you guys catch all that? Even though he was task-oriented, even though he was focused in, in all of those things, he, he still allowed his time to be interrupted. I know you wanted a candy bar earlier, so you get one for a great answer. How about that throw? All right. Do you see, I, I want to make sure you guys caught that principle. Even though he had these disciplines, these practices, these behaviors, these things that he regularly did, he still allowed himself to be interrupted. You know, like, you remember, you remember the context of when the, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place? What was Jesus trying to do? Anybody remember? He was trying to escape the crowd. It says he was tired and he wanted to go away to a lonely place. So he got in a boat and he tried to sail to the other side, but the wind was not with him. And he got there and everybody had already followed him around and picked up people on the way. And so now there's all these people and they're sitting there and they want to be taught and they're hungry. But he's exhausted. He feeds them he gets back in the boat and goes to, a, goes to a quiet place. But he allows ministry to interrupt other things. It's such a key idea. What, what happens right after he's baptized? What does he do? Yeah, he's tempted. He goes into the wilderness. But who led him into the wilderness? And what happened to him besides being tempted there? He, he was what? Yeah, he was served by angels. So even though it was a trying time, it was, also, it was also a spiritually renewing time. I've heard so many people say when they, when they take apart the, um, the thing about Jesus going and being tempted, that he fasted for 40 days. Um, and in, in Matthew and Luke, you know, and, and they talk about, you know, like how weak Jesus was at that moment. I, I totally disagree. Satan came at Jesus' strongest moment right there. He had just been fasting for 40 days. What more spiritually attuned moment is there for him? Sure, he's physically weak, 
But he just spent 40 days doing nothing but fasting and communing with God, being ministered to by angels. He was at the peak of his game when he got Satan there. I think if Satan had anything going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was catching him at his weakest moment. But I don't think 40 days of fasting leaves you weak. I think it leaves you spiritually strong. What, what happens at the very end, the conclusion of the passage tells us something, that Jesus became so popular that he had to hang out outside the villages. He had to hang out outside the cities at that point. The lonely places, that term is the same one. The solitary place there in the NIV is the same as lonely place earlier. Is the same as wilderness earlier where he's tempted. Do you guys see a parallel there? Okay. Do you see this pattern? Where at the beginning of his ministry, he's baptized. He then goes to the wilderness, the solitary place, the lonely place. All the same thing. He then has this frenetic period of ministry. After which, he goes and says, man, it was a late night last night. What am I going to do? Wake up early. Hang out with my father. He then goes and heals people and casts out demons and does all this sort of stuff. Becomes extremely popular. So what does he do? Hangs out outside the city again. He has this pattern of doing ministry, pulling back, doing ministry, pulling back, doing ministry, pulling back. You see that pattern? I mean, just Mark chapter 1 shows it to us, but if you follow Jesus' whole ministry, he does it regularly through the whole thing. Now, we don't see a pattern in this, but did, but did you catch that on the Sabbath, he goes and preaches in the synagogue? Now, again, if you read the biographies, if you read the Gospels, that happens again and again and again, right? He's, you, you always, on a Sabbath, find him in a synagogue. It was a habit. It was a pattern. All right? We have been told two lies, and, the, and that's what I want, that's what I want to, um, to, to conclude with. I want to make sure you're clear about these two lies. The first lie is this. Life is a marathon. That is a lie. Life is not a marathon. How many people have heard life is a marathon? It's not a sprint. Yeah. Okay. That's not true. Life is not a marathon. Life is a series of sprints. And endurance means your ability to recover. Let me explain. Life's not a marathon. Life is a series of sprints. Marathon runners, what do they do? They start running until when? They cross the finish line, yes? Sprinters do the same thing, but they run, and then they cross the finish line, and then usually they need to recover because there's like the next heat and the next heat and the next heat, right? And so like Olympic uh, world-class athletes sprint, and then they literally, after the, in the Olympics, they literally leave the sprinting line, shaking their legs, going outside, and, it, and two professional massage therapists sit there, and they work, on their, um, they, they work on their legs in order to work out all the lactic acid before the next race. They are, trying, they are trying to help their bodies recover as quickly as possible, all right? Have you ever seen a marathon runner before, like a professional marathon runner? Are they a large person or a small person? Tiny. Have you ever seen a sprinter before? Are they larger versus smaller? I mean, yeah, if you, like, you look at their leg muscles, they are like lean and cut, but like seriously ripped, okay? Which of those two do you want to look like? Do you want to look like the emaciated guy from the middle of nowhere who like crosses the finish line and nearly passes out? Or do you want to look like basically the stallion that's sitting there incredibly strong? Life is not a marathon. Life is a series of sprints. Yes, I'm sorry. 
I will move the board. Thank you. Great leadership move. Stepping up there. Life's not a marathon. Life's a series of sprints. If you want to lead yourself like Jesus did, you need to learn to have frenetic periods of activity after which time you can recover. Okay? So we are going to... Um, we're, we're, we're going to do something together. I'm going to time. Actually, do you, does anybody have like a stopwatch? Perfect. All I want you to do is you're going to time 15 seconds for us. We are all going to find our carotid arteries. Get that beat. And then when he's ready, oh, you know what? I can just do it on the clock. We're just going to do 15 seconds. Stand by. You're going to count the number of beats in case I didn't explain that clearly enough, all right? How many did you get? 17, 18, 20, 29. I got, I got 21. I've been up here working kind of hard teaching, though. Okay. Who ha- someone have 15? Anybody have 14? Anybody under 14? 14. Okay. Anybody higher than 29? Probably not. All right. Stand up. Put your stuff down. Find some room. Oh, man. I hope you put on an extra layer of deodorant. I need you. Or I'll, I'll just do it again. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to do jumping jacks. So if you've got your slippers on, you better take them off. Make sure you have enough room. Swing your arms. You don't want to hit anybody. We are going to do exactly 20 seconds worth of jumping jacks, after which time we are going to measure our heart rate for 15 seconds. Ready? Go. Oh, yeah. Feel the sweat glands. Come on, jump and jack. You're ready to stop. Three, two, Start. 
Anybody under 12? Anybody over 31? Okay. Let me let me tell you let me tell you how this is supposed to work and I, this was not very scientific, okay? And I didn't wait the appropriate amount of time for each one. T typically. Typically. You want your resting heart rate to be as low as possible, right? Fewest number of beats when you're just sitting around. However, when you exercise, you actually want your heart rate to go up faster. So you wanted a higher number on your second number because you want your body to respond quickly under exertion. And then when you begin to rest after you've taken some deep breaths, you again want your heart rate to plunge, yes? Okay, the same is true in ministry. Think about this for a second. When you are communing with God in that lonely place, you want to have that peace, you want to have that rest, you want to have that deep personal connection, right? That slow water time where the river is deep and the water's moving slowly. And then when it's time for ministry, when it's time to kick it into high gear, you want the spirit to show up and fire to rain down from heaven and you want, you want to move, right? You, you, you want God to respond to those points. You want your heart rate up. But then the key to ministry, or at least to self-leadership the way I see Jesus modeling it, is to be able to recover quickly in a very short amount of time so that you can go out and do it again. Life is not a marathon. Life is a series of sprints. 